You're listening to the news on RTHK. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong on the 1st of February. A warm welcome to Wednesday's Money Talk on Radio 3. From me, Peter Lewis. Markets are opening across Asia for a brand new month. Here are the business and finance headlines. The International Monetary Fund on Tuesday raised its 2023 global growth outlook slightly due to surprisingly resilient demand in the United States and Europe, an easing of energy costs and the reopening of China's economy. The IMF said global growth would still fall to 2.9% in 2023 from 3.4% last year, but its latest World Economic Outlook forecasts market improvement over an October prediction of 2.7% growth. And the two Asian powerhouse economies of China and India will supply over 50% of global growth this year. China's official manufacturing purchasing managers index unexpectedly posted an expansion for the first time since October 2022. China's manufacturing activity for January came in at 50.1. That's above the 50-point threshold, separating expansion from contraction. China's non-manufacturing PMI, which comprises the services and construction sector, rose sharply to 54.5 from 41.6 in December and was a lot better than the consensus of 52. This was the first expansion in China's service sector in four months and the strongest growth since June last year due to the lifting of the zero-COVID policy. The Eurozone economy posted a surprise expansion in the final quarter of 2022, easing recession fears. Preliminary data showed the Eurozone grew 0.1% in the fourth quarter. Economists had been expecting a 0.1% contraction and a 3.5% expansion in Ireland's economy contributed 0.1 percentage points to the euro area figure, helping the bloc expand overall. And US labour costs have slowed for a third consecutive quarter in a sign that wage inflation is cooling despite the tight labour market in the US. The Labour Department's Employment Cost Index report, which tracks wages and benefits paid out by US employers, show total pay for workers increased 1% over the final quarter of 2022. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Allcroft, Christopher Lee, senior partner at Farron Augustine and Alexander Investments, and RTHK's international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Despite the prospect of interest rates continuing to rise, US stocks have reversed some of 2022's losses, which was the worst year for equities since 2008. The S&P 500 saw its best January since 2019, ending with gains of 6.2% for the month. Overnight, it climbed 1.5% to close at 4,077. The Dow rose for the third month out of four. It added 369 points, or 1.1%, to 34,086 and for the month it was up 2.8%. The Nasdaq Composite Index rose 10.7% last month. That's its best start to a new year since January 2001. It closed yesterday at 11,585 for a daily gain of 1.7%. 
The pan-European stock 600 index rose 6.7% in January and London's FTSE 100 added 4.3% last month. Hong Kong stocks suffered big losses for the second day in a row on Tuesday. The Hang Seng Index fell 227 points, or 1%, to 21,842. The index, though, was up 10.4% in January. That's the index's best start to a year since 1996. And the rally has added 1.55 trillion US dollars of capitalization to the broader market. The Hang Seng Tech Index fell 0.8% yesterday, leaving it with gains of 10% for the month. On the mainline, mainland, the CSI 300 Index, which tracks the largest stocks listed in Shanghai and Shenzhen, slipped 1%, having briefly entered a new bull market on Monday when the index surged almost 20% since its late October low. And overseas investors bought a record amount of Chinese shares in January through the Stock Connect trading links with Hong Kong. Foreign inflows into China's stock market in January exceeded the whole of 2022. Offshore funds added to their portfolio a net 19.4 billion US dollars of stocks listed in Shanghai and Shenzhen last month, which is almost 50% above the previous record investment into mainland equities. In the commodities markets, oil is down for the seventh month out of the last eight. Brent crude oil settled at $84.47 a barrel, a loss of almost 2% in January. And January saw the biggest drop in natural gas prices since January 2001, trading back below $3. Copper contracts fell as low as $4.12 per pound Tuesday. But that still left Dr. Copper up 8.7% in January, its third straight monthly gain and the best start to the year for the metal since 2017. And another industrial metal that did well, aluminium, it was 8.5% higher in January, its best start to a year since 2012. And gold surged for the third straight month in a row. It rallied almost 6%, back above $1,900. It's trading this morning at $1,928 an ounce. That's its highest since April 2022. Treasury yields ended the month of January significantly lower. The US 10-year bond yield is down 37 basis points over the month at 3.51%. And the US dollar fell for the fourth straight month in January. The euro is trading this morning at $1.08.5. The Japanese yen is worth 130.06 versus the dollar. Sterling is at $1.23 and nine Hong Kong dollars and 65 cents. Offshore Chinese yuan is trading at 6.75.5 versus the dollar. And Bitcoin saw its best start to a year since 2013. It's up 40% in January trading this morning at $23,100. And as we wait for the outcome of the Fed uh, monetary policy meeting due in the early hours of tomorrow morning Hong Kong time, Asian stocks are moving ahead. In Australia, the SX200 up two-thirds of a percent. Nikkei 225 in Japan also up two-thirds of a percent. The Cosby in South Korea has risen three-quarters of a percent just after the open. And it looks like the Hang Seng is going to add about 70 points at the open this morning. Times 810. Let's welcome our guests on the phone this morning. We have our regular Wednesday correspondent back for the first time this year, Stuart Allcroft, Asia Fund Management Industry Consultants. Happy Year of the Rabbit, Stuart. Yes, good morning to you, Peter, and uh, uh, Kung Hei Fat Joy to the listeners from me, as it's my first time back. 
And we have with us Christopher Lee, who's senior partner at Farron Augustine and Alexander Investments. Morning, Christopher. Hey, good morning, Peter. Welcome back. Welcome back to you too. Thank you very much. And this morning, we have our international economics correspondent, Barry Wood, who isn't in New York. He's at Sunnyvale in Silicon Valley, California, I believe, next to the Apple headquarters in Cupertino. (laughs) Morning, Barry. Yes. Good morning to you, Peter, and welcome back from the UK. Thank you very much. And I presume you're eagerly awaiting the Apple results, which are due tomorrow. Indeed, I am. And... uh, I'll tell you, it's very cold here in the valley. Maybe that uh, reflects something more than just the weather. Yeah, we'll see tomorrow when we get those uh, Apple fourth quarter earnings. Let's start, though, uh, with the IMF. The IMF on Tuesday raised its 2023 global growth outlook. It said because of surprisingly resilient demand in the United States and Europe and easing of energy costs and the reopening of China's economy. It still projects global growth to fall this year to 2.9% from 3.4% in 2022. But that is an improvement over its October prediction of 2.7% growth. And it says for 2024, growth will accelerate slightly to 3.1%, although that is slightly below October's forecast. IMF Chief Economist Pierre Olivier Gorinchas said recession risks had subsided and central banks are making progress in controlling inflation, but more work was needed to curb prices and new disruptions could come from further escalation of the war in Ukraine. And it also warned of a number of downside risks originating from China that could impact the global growth outlook, including uh, the economic recovery stalling if there's another rapid spread of COVID-19. And it also warned about China's real estate market. And one other thing that it did point out, it said that this year, Asia's two powerhouse economies of China and India will supply over 50% of global growth in 2023. I tell you what, Barry, let's start with you and get your um, thoughts on that. The IMF says uh, the world economy is now at a turning point. It says growth has bottomed out this year and it will start to accelerate again in 2024. Do you agree with that assessment? Yes, I think that uh, things have, you know, you said it in the beginning, Peter. When you said that uh, natural gas prices are down below three dollars, there's the European recovery that we didn't foresee. And then when you mentioned that the 10 year is down at three point five one percent in the United States and the fact that uh, we've got cheaper oil, we've got gas prices declining and we've got a relatively strong uh, labor force. All of this suggests the U.S. is not nearly as bad despite all those interest rate rises than we thought. So, yeah, I think this is uh, this is a rather optimistic and I think even Stuart might agree this is a realistic report. Uh, well, realistic, yes. It's uh, certainly taking a bit more optimism. Um, India is certainly going great guns at the moment, and, and China is recovering strongly from its uh, troubles with COVID. So, yes, it's not surprising that these two economies are expected to represent 50% or more of the um, of gro- global growth in the, in the coming 12 months. Um, what is interesting is that um, Germany, for example, which last qu- last quarter was uh, in negative territory with the IMF, is is now in positive territory, whereas UK has reversed to become negative. So I think there's a certain, a certain amount of tinkering at the edges going on here as well. Um, and I suppose this is all a reflection of uh, both the very high energy costs that have 
started to come down, and that's going to improve economies generally, and the fact that um, there are certain problems going on, particularly in the UK, for labour costs, uh, inflation, and other aspects, which are going to impact these these numbers quite greatly. I know, Stuart, in the past on this programme, you've been quite critical, haven't you, of the funds forecasts, and in particular, their frequent revisions. The fund yep. cut its 2023 outlook three times last year. Do you now yep. think we're going to see the opposite? Do you think we're going to see it increasing its outlook three times this year? Um, I, think it could, I think there's a potential it could do. Um, bear in mind that there, there are still massive external factors that could change things very quickly. Um, and, and by that I mean the Russia-Ukraine war and global energy costs generally. And both of those could improve the outlook if the war were to end, if energy costs came down even more substantially. That, that could, could improve the outlook and mm -hmm. right across the board too. So, yes, it's always a possibility. And I think, uh, you know, the IMF comes out with their forecasts. I am critical mm -hmm. of them because of the inaccuracy of them. But it's not, the, um, it's not the precise numbers that we should be bothered about. It's the trends. And mm -hmm. it's the trend that is far more important. Uh, and I think most economists would view the trend as, as being what they're, they're, they're looking at rather than the precise number. Christopher, let's bring you into this discussion. It's quite yeah. a big shift, isn't it? Because the IMF's top mm -hmm. officials spent much of last year warning about the risks of a widespread recession. But the data, we saw the Eurozone mm -hmm. data yesterday, seems to suggest that maybe, um, and similarly in the US, maybe the big economies are going to escape recession. Well, while it's a bit cold for Barry in Cupertino, but we're seeing, you know, Hong Kong and also uh, the rest of China actually warming up, right? So back to your point, um, Peter, about the uh, non-manufacturing PMI numbers of uh, 54.5 that you cited earlier, it basically indicated three things to me. I think, firstly, this is saying to me that uh, there will be more and more growth coming from the service sectors in China. And number two, I believe uh, the, uh, the domestic consumption is also a key focus by the uh, central government and CCP. And, and lastly, the third point uh, that I would like to just uh, highlight from the non-manufacturing PMI number that you cited is that uh, the, uh, the growth is no longer going to be just export-driven. There's a lot more services and there's a lot more domestic consumption in China. And so to, uh, I think, uh, Stuart's point, I mean, half of the growth that the IMF is predicting is going to come from both uh, India and China. That's so, incredible, uh, isn't it? It just tells you just how much this region is now contributing to global growth and how we, much we are, uh, it's dependent right, on this we region. We are going to be driving the growth. So I, I, I am much more optimistic than, uh, than Barry. I know it's a bit cold there, but uh, we are still <laughs> celebrating Chinese New Year. <laughs> mm. And do you think the Chinese consumer is going to pull through? I mean, we've worked with this forecast is also reliant on a much more resilient economy in China than expected and also elsewhere. And a large part of that is going to be dependent upon the consumer. Yes, I think, uh, I think Peter, when you are coming back from the UK, you must be happy that there's no more quarantine. There's no more need to uh, <laughs> swipe your uh, leave home safe anywhere. You can go anywhere nowadays and there's no more restriction on how many people you can have at a table at a restaurant. So uh, optimism is everywhere. So I would invite uh, Barry to actually come and visit Hong Kong. Mm. <laughs> but Barry, there were the, this IMF 
um, rather upbeat tone. It does contrast, though, doesn't it, with um, a much more dire view from the IMF's sister institution, the World Bank. Uh, the World Bank has slashed its growth forecast for most countries and regions, and it's um, warning that there could be adverse shocks that could tip the global economy into a recession. Um, how do you explain the difference, first of all, between the IMF's and the World Bank's forecasts, and which one do you tend to uh, lean towards? Well, I've always had more respect for the people at the IMF than the World Bank, and that's not only because it's run mostly by Europeans, whereas the bank is run mostly by Americans. Mm. I just think that there's much more rigorous research done at the International Monetary Fund. But I think it just has to do with uh, a surprise. You know, 2022 was such a disastrous year, whether it was equity prices, it was COVID in Europe, it was the war, and of course the fear of what that war in Ukraine might do and escalate. That's still with us, by the way. But the fact that natural gas prices have gone down, the fact that the American economy has had this surprising strength. You know, we still may have a recession. Business confidence is not good. Earnings are down. And yet it's much better than was thought of several months ago. I just think that the IMF has got it right. I think it took some courage for them to say that it's somewhat better outlook now than it was three to six months ago. And for the United States, the IMF cited uh, better than expected consumption and investment in the last quarter. It talked about the robust uh, labor market. The U.S. does seem to be surprising to the upside, doesn't it? It does. And look, we've had a very sharp contraction in housing. That is due to higher interest rates. Mortgage interest rates have doubled. But think of it. We went from zero on Fed funds, short-term interest rates, to 4.25%. And we're probably going to go to 4.50 in 24 hours' time. That's rapid increase, and yet the consumer is still spending. Now, you can say, well, that's because of all the stimulus. Probably true. Unless there's something that we don't know about, and there always is, the United States economy is doing pretty well. Stuart, you're our UK expert, so I wanted to ask you about the uh, the UK forecast. Britain's the only major advanced economy the IMF predicts to be in recession this year, with a 0.6% fall in GDP. The IMF talks about households struggling with rising living costs for energy and mortgages. But it does say its new forecast reflects those higher energy prices and financial conditions. What, what's gone wrong for the UK? Well, I think the simple answer is that um, it was Liz Truss and um, Kwasi Kwarteng, who was her very short-term um, finance minister. They introduced a, a budget immediately after being um, elected in, uh, into office, which was a complete disaster for the economy. Um, it, it immediately pushed up interest rates and, uh, and, and caused substantial losses, especially to pension funds. Um, and and um, as a result of that, it's in, impacted both the local and the global view of the UK economy. Uh, uh, now, that only lasted for six weeks, and um, Rishi Sunak uh, took over, as Prime Minister and Jeremy Hunt as uh, Finance Minister. And as a result of that, um, they, have got to, they have a big struggle to try to bring the economy back in line with the way uh, normal growth would occur. And I think, it's, um, I think most um, observers are giving them the chance to do it, 
Um, but uh, locally in the UK, um, there are separate problems going on which are going to have a massive impact, which are mainly about strikes and inflation and, and the need for public service workers who are, um, who are mainly those that are going on strike, need, seeking to have wage increases of up to 12, 13, 14 percent in some instances, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is, uh, in the current circumstances, unaffordable by the government. It's three years now since Brexit. Where are these UK Brexit benefits that were promised? They don't seem to have come through yet, do they? No, and, and unfortunately, um, yes, you're right, it was the uh, third anniversary yesterday um, of Brexit. But no, they haven't come through yet, and, and I think probably because... Um, a lot of the possible benefits have been taken out of, of the, the sales by uh, all that's been going on in Europe with um, the Russia-Ukraine war and, and increases in uh, energy prices, which have really damaged the economy quite badly. OK, Chris, let's talk about the, the central banks. Mm -hmm. it's, it's going to be an important couple of days, isn't it? We've got the Fed. Um, mm -hmm. It's going to announce its uh, outcome of its monetary policy meeting uh, tonight. Then we've also got the European mm -hmm. Central Bank, the Bank of England, meeting tomorrow. It looks like interest rates are going to be raised in, in all those places to 15-year mm -hmm. highs. Investors expecting the Fed uh, to raise interest rates by 25 basis points uh, tonight, which will take them right. to a range of 4.5 to 4 and 3 quarter percent. We're now at the highest level since September 2007, but yet no signs of it really mm. slowing the economy, is it? Or certainly not tipping the economies into recession anyway. I um, agree with you on that. And I think the last time about a month ago that when we were all on this uh, call, most people were still expecting almost like a 50 basis points hike. But I think mm. in the last uh, 30 days or so, the, uh, the temperature has definitely changed. I'm on the investment committee of the California Endowment. I think every investment committee member there is expecting a 25 basis point, just like what you mentioned. And then uh, looking at where the futures market are trading right now, I would even speculate that there's almost a 90% chance that uh, tonight we'll hear the announcement that uh, it's going to be 25 basis points. So this is just my personal prediction. Well, Fed fund futures markets are also pricing in an 83% chance of another 25 basis point hike in March and 42% odds of another 25 basis point increase um, in April. So that's going to take us above 5%. Where, where does this all, when does this all come to an end? It should end there. I think uh, I am optimistic. And uh, it will not be as cold as, uh, you know, January where Ferry is right now. I think the springtime will come in March. Barry, I mean, do, do you worry about uh, what's going on? Because inflation is coming down, um, but it's settling at around 4%. So that's much higher than a year ago. It's still double uh, the Fed's targets. It's going to look really hard, isn't it, to get inflation down to 2% from here? Because it seems to be sticking at around that 4% level. Is that, that going to be a concern for the central banks? You're right. And I, we're not going to get to 2%. But if we get to... Uh be happy. I mean, the fact is that uh, we're taking money out through quantitative tightening as well. 95 billion of securities are being sold into the market every month. So, you know, it's amazing that this economy has done as well as it has. I don't think the Fed is going to stop. I think that would be a credibility problem. Mm. Rather, 
They've given the signal they went from 75 basis points to 50. They're now going to go to 25, but they'll keep that up at least for one or two more sessions. And then we'll see. If we tip into recession in the next couple of months, then all bets are off. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, Barry. I think that um, we, we get a bit too excited about the thought that uh, interest rates are rising uh, and uh, 4.5% we may see by tomorrow. If you look at the very long-term averages, then that's not really a very high rate of interest. And um, the fact that it's, it is coming up from zero to four, four and a half, that's what makes it seem high. Yes. But it, in reality, uh, over the very long term, we're talking about 50, 100 years or more, you know, the sort of time frame that you and I lived, um, uh, we, 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 we have been used to much higher rates of interest in the past, and it's not so difficult to, to, to cope with. And including here in Hong, Hong Kong as well, Stuart, isn't it? We're going to see, obviously, yes. the Hong Kong Monetary Authority exactly. raise rates uh, tomorrow. Where it has had a big impact is on the housing markets here. Yes, and, and it slows down the housing market, but it, but you know, it's it's not like it's double digit in interest rates, and mm. and double digit interest for mortgage payments, which is what it was thirty years ago. Chris, let me get your thoughts on the markets. As uh, we heard at the beginning, there, it's been a very good January uh, for major right. indices in the U.S. Here in Hong Kong, they've had their best start to a year for for many a year. Part of the reason for that is because investors are assuming mm -hmm. that there's going to be a soft landing from the economy and the Fed is going to pause uh, from raising rates later this year. Do you think, though, maybe uh, investors have got a bit ahead of themselves here? Well, back to your earlier comments about the uh, S&P level, the NASDAQ and the HSI, and also how volatile right, it has been. And also, this is the rapid year, uh, so it's going to be bouncy. And people in equity derivatives are expecting a lot more volatilities uh, in the marketplace. Yes, uh, we've had, had a very good January so far, but the last, uh, I think, one or two trading days that you just uh, shared with us have also experienced negative moves. And then uh, don't forget that uh, there's still the um, U.S.-China tension, uh, given the coffee is making some noise. So uh, we should expect a... Um, a bit more volatilities in the marketplace. So I think the equity derivatives traders will have a lot more interesting opportunities in the marketplace. There is a saying on Wall Street, isn't there? So goes January, so goes the year. In other words, what happens in January tends to set the trend for the rest of the year. And that has actually worked out to be true. 80% of the time when January was positive, uh, the rest of the year uh, has been positive as well, with an average gain of about 16% for the full year in, uh, in the U.S. anyway. Do you think we're going to see that this year? I think so, yeah. So uh, I remain bullish, but however, I think uh, between now and December 2023, uh, you should fasten your seatbelt. <laughs> well, I, I think a lot depends. I, I, I don't disagree, but I think a lot depends on whether some of the geopolitical tensions that we've got have been resolved by the end of the year. And if they have, we could see a very strong return in the markets. OK, well, thank you very much for a very interesting discussion this morning. Look forward to talking to you all again soon. You heard there, Stuart Allcroft who's our Asia Fund Management Industry Consultant, Christopher Lee, Senior Partner at Farron, Augustine and Alexander, and also our International Economics Correspondent over in Silicon Valley, California this morning, Barry Wood. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. 
Let's take a final look at the markets for this morning with that Fed meeting coming up in a few hours' time. Uh, the ASX 200 in Australia is up half a percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan also up half a percent. Similar story for the Cosby. Uh, the Hang Seng is going to open in positive territory as well with a gain of about 70 points at the open this morning. Uh, thank you very much for listening this morning. Stay tuned for back chat after the news with Janice Wong and Jenny Lamb. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy, sunny periods during the day, a maximum temperature of around 23 degrees. And then it's going to be windier in the next couple of days, cool with a few rain patches on Friday and Saturday. The temperature right now is 19 degrees, 84% relative humidity. Times 8.31, here's Barry O'Rourke with the Half Hour News. Roundtable lawmaker Michael Tien says fare increases of more than 50% for the Star Ferry are unreasonable. Yesterday, Exco signed off on the hike after taking into account the Star Ferry's financial position and affordability for the general public, although it did reject a company's application to double the fares. Mr Tien, who sits on LegCo's transport panel, said passengers should not have to pay more to ensure the Star Ferry's survival. Instead, he said government funding was the answer. I support the continuation of the Star Ferry as a landmark for Hong Kong uh, in terms of a very significant tourist attraction. But the question is, who should pay for it? That is the question. So if government views Star Ferry has a case financially, they should subsidize Star Ferry, not the passengers. Passengers should be able to pay a fair increase similar to CPI index. The head of the Real Estate Developers Association, Stuart Leung, has expressed concern about potential traffic chaos in the Kai Tak district once light public housing is built there. The government plans to build some 10,000 flats on Olympic Avenue near the Kai Tak MTR station. Mr Leung says developers generally welcome the idea of building temporary housing because there's a need for it. But he says besides this project, there are several private developments on the former runway that are almost complete and all the residents would basically be relying on the so our only worry is transport, whether it will jam up the entire Kaitak district. The government has told us that they have some solution to a degree. In this aspect, we think as the government has made this promise, especially that the government has a need for temporary housing, it's impossible for us to oppose this. Turning overseas, the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, has criticized several key policies of the new Israeli government during a meeting with the Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. Mr. Blinken said Washington opposed action by either side that would make a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict more difficult. On the immediate future facing the Palestinians, Mr. Blinken had this to say. It's also important to continue to strive uh, not only for reducing violence, but ensuring that ultimately uh, Israelis and Palestinians alike enjoy the same rights, uh, the same opportunities. What we're, what we're seeing now for Palestinians is a shrinking horizon of hope, not an expanding one. And that too, we believe, needs to change. And finally, the Hollywood actor Alec Baldwin has formally been charged with involuntary manslaughter after the fatal shooting of a cinematographer on a film set. Helena Hutchins was shot while filming the Western Rust in the state of New Mexico in 2021. Mr Baldwin allegedly fired the prop gun during a rehearsal. The film's armourer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, also faces charges. We'll have more news on the hour from RTHK.
Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and our guest presenter is Jenny Lam. On today's program, we're talking about falling birth rates around the world, what it means and if anything can be done to slow the trend. China's population shrank last year for the first time in six decades and Sichuan province is launching new measures in two weeks' time to allow unmarried people to legally have children, allowing them to raise a family and enjoy benefits previously reserved only for married couples. In Japan, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida says he wants his government to double spending on children-related programs because of the falling birth rate. He says Japan is facing a population crisis that must be solved now 